Good morning. South Africa joins the world in celebrating World Refugee Day today. The United Nations High Commission of Refugees in South Africa will hold the commemoration in the capital, Pretoria. World Refugee Day was instituted by the UN General Assembly in 2001 to mark the 50th anniversary of the 1951 Refugee Convention, which is the main international instrument of refugee law. This spells out clearly who a refugee is and the kind of legal protection assistance and social rights he or she should receive from signatories to the convention. According to the UNHCR, South Africa has the highest number of refugees in southern Africa, with almost 300,000. Zimbabwe's Constitutional Court is expected to hear an urgent government application today to delay elections to the 14th of August. President Robert Mugabe's government is applying for a two-week extension on the court's July 31st deadline, following pressure from original leaders at a weekend SADC summit. While Mugabe has been pushing for early polls, his coalition partner and rival, Prime Minister Morgan Changirai, wants the vote delayed to allow time to implement the reforms. Changirai is expected to file a response to the Justice Minister's application for an extension. Zimbabwean pro-democracy activist Lavmo Madugu. The application that was filed by Minister Chinamasa is one of the uh, worst applications that have ever been made in this country. Uh, it was shoddy. It was uh, not. It was very, very uh, half committed. What he was mandated to do was to bring to the Constitutional Court the predicament of the Zimbabwean government. He has filed an application himself and he has made Prime Minister and Professor Ngobe respondents. He has filed this application uh, clearly with an intention that this application must fail. Uh, but uh, the, we are approaching the Constitutional Court um, because we are now allowed to do that because the Prime Minister is the respondent in this matter and we will put facts right. The clock is ticking for Mali as it scrambles to organize key elections in less than 40 days following a ceasefire deal between the government and separatist Tuareg rebels. The agreement, reached on Tuesday after 10 days of tense negotiations, will enable Malian troops to enter the Tuareg-held city of Kidal in the northeast to secure polls scheduled to take place on the 28th of July. Malians have welcomed the truce, but there are fears the deal will be difficult to implement and could could unravel after the vote. Malian military sources say the accord envisages the army entering the regional capital without delay, accompanied by French soldiers and troops from the African-led international support mission to Mali Afisma. The Security Council says it's outraged by the attack on a United Nations compound in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, yesterday, which caused numerous deaths and injuries for which Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility. Security Council members have extended their condolences to the victims and families, as well as to the people and government of Somalia. Ambassador Mark Leal Grant of the United Kingdom is the president of the Security Council in June. The members of the Security Council underline their support for all UN personnel working to bring peace, stability and prosperity to the Somali people. The members of the Security Council reaffirm that terrorism in all its forms and manifestations constitutes one of the most serious threats to international peace and security and that any acts of terrorism are criminal and unjustifiable regardless of their motivation wherever and whenever and by whomsoever committed. 
And finally, South Africa has more people living longer with HIV, which is attributed to the country's ARV treatment program. The National HIV Household Survey for 2012 shows that about 6.4 million people in South Africa are living with HIV, or about 12.3% of the population. These figures are up from 5.6 million, or 10.3% of the population, in 2008. Over 2 million people are on ARV treatment. Dr. Kangelani Zuma of the Human Sciences Research Council presented some of the survey's findings at the 6th South African AIDS Conference in the country's coastal city, Durban. And when we look deeper in the results, that uh, uh, the proportion of the prevalence of HIV has increased among people who are 25 years and above, but among those who are 15 years to 24 years, HIV prevalence has gone down, which means actually fewer youth is HIV positive, but more people who are 25 and above are HIV positive, which shows a steady increase that could be attributed to, to success of antiretroviral therapy. That's all for now. I'll be back with more news in the next hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. In our top story for this morning, Zimbabwe's constitutional court is set to hear an urgent government application today to delay polls to August the 14th. The Justice Minister on Tuesday applied for a two-week extension on the court's July 31st deadline following pressure from regional leaders at a weekend special summit. While President Robert Mugabe has been pushing for early polls, his coalition partner Prime Minister Morgan Tsangarai wants the dates delayed to allow time to implement reforms to level the playing field. Tsangarai is today also expected to file a response to the Justice Minister's application for an extension after his party described it as shoddy and designed to fail. Shingai Nyoka has more from Harare. The first group of African observers have arrived in Zimbabwe as the country counts down to general elections. But the question remains, will the Constitutional Court overturn its own ruling and delay elections that it ordered held by July the 31st? Legal experts say it's not likely, based on the merits of the application. Lavmo Maduku is a constitutional law expert. Uh, I think for me it's almost certain that the Constitutional Court will dismiss uh, the application on the basis that the way it has been made, it discloses no legal basis. On Tuesday and on a directive from regional leaders, Justice Minister Patrick Chinamasa submitted an urgent court application, supposedly on behalf of the coalition government. But the application appears to distance his party and President Mugabe from the extension request. It states that while President Mugabe was respectful of the ruling and had complied fully with the court order without any difficulty or impediments, pressure from coalition partners as Morgan Trangirai and Welshman Mube had forced Sadiq leaders to issue a directive for an extension. So as far as I see it, the Minister of Justice has simply gone back to say I'm coming to the court because the Sadiq heads of states has asked us to get back to the courts. That's what he's simply said. He has not even uh, gone into the 
details of trying to give a legal basis for the SADC heads of state's uh, request. Prime Minister and Movement for Democratic Change leader Morgan Changirai has been pushing for a later date for polls to allow for media and security reforms. His party says he will file an application on Thursday in response to Chinamasa. Douglas Monzora is the party spokesman. The application that was filed by Minister Chinamasa is one of the uh, worst applications that have ever been made in this country. Uh, it was shoddy. It was uh, not. It was very, very uh, half committed. What he was mandated to do was to bring to the constitutional court the predicament of the Zimbabwean government. He has filed an application himself and he has made Prime Minister and Professor Ngobe respondents. He has filed this application uh, clearly with an intention that this application must fail. The weekend SADC summit was held as a success for those pushing for delays, but it's starting to look like anything but. The constitutional court ruling is expected by the weekend. Love Momaduku. So at the end of the day, the court will be faced with a very clear situation where there's no legal basis and when in fact there is also a lot of public interest in the finality of the decision of the constitutional court. Most people now know that the issue is whether or not the court would allow a situation where its decisions may be questioned in fora outside uh, its, it, it, its, its premises. Shingai Nyoka, Harare, Zimbabwe. Oil, coal, d- diamonds, precious metals and other resources are literally the wealth of nations, but in too many countries, the profits they generate rarely reach the people. UN Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson told the Security Council during a debate yesterday on conflict prevention and the extractive industries. Diane Penn reports. The Deputy Secretary-General believes that, if managed wisely, extractive resources can serve as the foundation for sustainable development and lasting peace. As we are seeing in many developing countries, resource wealth can be a catalyst for development. As the Secretary-General's high-level panel on the post-2015 development agenda states, and I quote, we need a transparency revolution so citizens can see exactly where and how taxes, aid and revenues from extractive industries are spent. Rivalry for access to natural resources has been behind wars and rebellions in countries such as Sierra Leone, Liberia and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But over the past decade, African economies have benefited from the global demand for commodities, resulting in increased exports and foreign investment. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, who chairs the Africa Progress Panel, says governments must convert this temporary windfall into permanent human development. The starting point is for all countries to develop national strategies that set up the terms under which their natural resources will be developed, including fiscal policies, contractual arrangements, and tax regimes. These strategies should replace short-term calculations with necessary long-term thinking. For fragile countries that depend on their natural resources, support from the international community is crucial. Carolyn Anstey is Managing Director at the World Bank, which is helping such nations to sustainably manage this wealth. We also need to pay attention to the environment and to the local communities directly affected by these investments. And this work needs to go beyond governments. Civil society organizations, parliamentarians 
and the media have a key role to play to enable better policy debates, better contractual negotiations, and better ability to enforce contracts and track contractual obligations. Prior to the start of the debate, Mr. Eliasson, the UN Deputy Secretary General, expressed shock and sadness at the deadly attack on the UN compound in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, that morning. The UN mission in the country reports that a pickup truck rigged with explosives was detonated outside the gate of the compound. Diane Penn, United Nations. Rwanda's Prosecutor General Martin Ngoga has requested the International Criminal Tribunal Court for Rwanda, the ICTR, and the United Nations Security Council to review genocide cases that he says were decided on controversial grounds. The Prosecutor General's remarks come barely one week after the publication of a confidential report by a Danish judge at the International Criminal Tribunal Court for Yugoslavia. The report revealed that the president of the appeals chamber of the ICTR, Theodore Miron, has for many years been exerting pressure on judges to decide on cases under the political influence from some countries. Silvanus Karamera reports. The information containing concerns about the Danish judge one Frederick Haroff first appeared last week in the Danish press accusing the president of the International Tribunal Court for Rwanda, ISTR's appeals chamber, Theodore Miro, of exerting pressure on his fellow judges to decide on high-profile war crimes go free. The prosecutor general, Martin Ngoga, said that such controversies have brought about a huge impact on the proceedings of high-profile cases involving the masterminds of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. Rwanda and the International Criminal Court for Rwanda ICTR have had a bitter history on legal applications on genocide cases held in Arusha at the ICTR headquarters. Some of those released by the appeals chamber at the International Tribunal Court for Rwanda on contentious grounds include two former ministers in the government that oversaw the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda. They include Justin Mujenzi, who was the minister for trade, and Prosper Mujeraneza, the public service minister at the time. In September 2011, the two men had been sentenced to 30 years in prison, having been found guilty of conspiracy to commit genocide and direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Subsequently, the two ministers were acquitted on what is cited by Rwanda as controversial grounds in February this year by the International Tribunal Court for Rwanda, ICTR, Chamber of Appeal, led by the accused judge, one Theodore Miro. Now, the Rwanda's Prosecutor General Martin Waka says Rwanda has been raising concerns over incomprehensible acquittals by the Peers Chamber, but now that the issue has been coming up from within the court itself, Rwanda is compelled to taking these measures. We will advise the prosecutor of the ICTR to ask for the review of those cases that were decided in a controversial way. But for this to happen, I believe there must be further scrutiny on what this judge has revealed so that facts can be sufficiently gathered to support this initiative. I hope the prosecutor will also not just ignore this revelation. It would be pathetic if there is some kind of negative solidarity between the judges themselves and between the prosecutor, which is why I said if the tribunal is not able to exhaust this matter in, uh, in a thorough way, then some external force must be applied 
to make sure it happens. Because this revelation from, comes from within the court itself. If this matter is going to be just wished away or swept under the carpet, then we shall have destroyed everything it did for many, many years. The prosecutor general said that this is a serious issue that should be paid attention to since it affects the justice for survivors in Rwanda and legacy for the ICTR. He called for further investigations and that Rwanda has the right to know the truth of the matter. This is a serious issue. It's a serious issue that it cannot simply be swept under the carpet. It must be thoroughly investigated. We need to know what has been happening. The tribunal owes us an explanation on what has been happening. Normally the decision of the court is the decision of the court. The public may take it or not take it. But when an insider comes out and tells something wrong has been happening in the way we did the cases, and these are not simple cases, they are cases about the genocide, then the victims and the general public is entitled to know what exactly has been taking place. So what, what we are expecting is that this matter, on the court's own initiative, or on the initiative of the Security Council that created the court and appointed the judges, uh, is going to be thoroughly investigated. And based on what the findings might be, the prosecutor must consider asking for the review of those cases that were controversially decided through what this judge has revealed. The Danish judge, Frederick Harroff's criticism, contained in a 55-page confidential document which was leaked last week. In the same report, Frederick Harroff scrutinizes and criticizes a series of judgments acquitting Serbian and Croatian leaders at the International Tribunal Court for Yugoslavia, ICTY. However, Prosecutor General Martin Unger says that sad part of it is that the same judge is more concerned with the cases in the International Tribunal Court for Yugoslavia than the International Criminal Court for Rwanda, where these contentions occurred in both tribunal courts. Silvanus Kalemera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. South African President Jacob Zuma has denied any knowledge that assets of the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi were being kept in South African banks. It is alleged that the assets estimated at around 10 billion rand were placed in South Africa by the Libyan Investment Authority, which had close links with Gaddafi. Members of Parliament use question time in the National Assembly to establish the President's information on this transaction. Recent media reports allege that a deal was struck with Libya to repatriate the assets in question. Responding for the first time on the matter, President Zuma told the House he had heard of the presence of Libyan investigators in the country probing certain assets, but not who it belonged to. Abongwe Gobogana reports from Parliament. It's also reported that um, there has been involvement in this discussion about the recovery of money the, the head of security of the ANC party. Now, what is not clear is the connection between the ANC party and, of course, the recovery of the money, if you can share light about it, because we believe it's a state-to-state -state issue. The Honorable the President. Thank you, uh, Honorable <coughs> Speaker. Uh, with regard to the last part, I, I don't know. That has not come to my ears. Uh, that some ANC head of security was involved, so I don't know about it. Uh, with regard to whether the money belongs to uh, Colonel Gaddafi or the state, I also don't know. I don't know how this money came here, who is owner of it. <clears throat> the only thing that I've answered is that 
Libyan officials have come asking for what they know was here and apparently yes it, it is and therefore the arrangements how this must be taken back. As to whether it belongs to an individual or the state, I don't know. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. It was COP member of Parliament, Leonard Ramatlakane, who sought clarity on this diplomatic issue during the President's final question session in the House for this semester. President Zuma faced a number of tough questions on domestic and continental issues. The first one dealt with the recent spate of lootings of shops belonging to foreign nationals in Gauteng and the Eastern Cape. Members wanted to know how government plans to deal with any possible outbreak of xenophobic. President Zuma said the issue is being taken out of proportion. Many South Africans protected the foreigners. And I had an opportunity to meet with them uh, in, in around uh, Pretoria and Israel. They were very clear that some of them were saying, please don't touch the foreigners. I think even with the last incident, that happened in Johannesburg, it was clear division. So you can't say the xenophobia is such a huge problem in South Africa. He also reiterated government's commitment to fight against drug and alcohol abuse. His remarks were in response to a question on national plans to deal with the scourge and his visit to El Dorado Park in Gauteng last month. We must not lose the momentum gained in El Dorado Park. Early intervention to identify and help young people before they become addicted. El Dorado Park has shown that if we stand together, we can defeat the sketch. This is a matter of life and death for our society. On continental matters, President Zuma vowed that government will continue to take part in African missions if called upon. The president said it is all part of South Africa's foreign responsibilities. There were no poor decisions taken on the matter of the Central African Republic. No poor decisions. Very proper procedures of establishing relationship with countries were followed. And the matter was... Our soldiers were there to do the training. Not, they were not going there for a war. They were there for training, to train the soldiers of that country. <clears throat> that was the arrangement. That was South African President Jacob Zuma ending that report by our reporter Abongwe Gobokana in Parliament. We now cross over to Tabiso Luhuko for our economics update. The group of eight most industrialized countries have expressed strong support for the African Development Bank Group's priorities. The G8 says it supports its initiative on infrastructure and the African Legal Support Facility, which helps the countries negotiate better contracts in the natural resources sector. In a final communique after meeting in the Northern Ireland, the G8 also called for strong replenishment of the African Development Fund, which supports a range of poverty reduction programs. 
Meanwhile, President of the African Development Bank, Donald Kaberuka, and Rector of the United Nations University, Professor David Maloney, have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to foster research and knowledge exchange on sustainable development in Africa. The MOU was signed after the Tokyo International Conference on African Development held in Yokohama, Japan. Gaberuka showed his interest in his consortium of universities during his visit to Japan. Representatives from the consortium of universities exchanged their views on innovative ways to achieve sustainable development in Africa through higher education. Striking teachers and nurses in Kenya have vowed not to return to work if the discrepancies in their salaries are not addressed by government. Teachers and nurses in public schools and hospitals are demanding a salary increase and payments for their hardship allowances. Most public schools and hospitals in Kenya are now facing national crisis. Mwai Konyo reports from Nairobi. Despite government efforts to avert industrial action by teachers and nurses in public schools and hospitals in protest against the government's failure to implement their demands, they have now vowed not to return to their working stations till their demands are met. For the second running day, the striking teachers and nurses have downed their tools, demanding pay increase and immediate payments of their hardship, medical, house and commuter allowances. Niger's worst power cuts in years has crippled businesses and government offices in the capital Niamey for more than three weeks, raising fears that they could harm the fragile economy of one of the world's poorest nations. Niamey and Niger's southwestern provinces of Doso and Tilaberi have been largely without electricity when a storm knocked out power lines to the Kianji hydroelectric dam in western Nigeria. The three regions are home to more than a third of Niger's 17 million inhabitants and the bulk of the output from the landlocked country's 11 billion dollar economy which grew 11 percent last year due to good harvests and the start of oil output South Africa's trade deficit unexpectedly narrowed in the first quarter to 5.8% from 6.3% recorded in the first quarter of last year. The gap on the current account, which measures a trade in goods and services, was expected to have widened over 6% of GDP. According to the bank's head of statistics, Johan van den Hever, the depreciation in the rand is making it affordable for foreigners to purchase local goods. The reversal came about both on the trade account and on the services and transfer account. Uh, so there's been narrowings of those deficits, but mild, def- m- mild narrowings, not very uh, large uh, de- de- decelerations. Uh, going forward, one would probably expect that given the current levels of the exchange rate, there will be further encouragement for exporters and discouragement for importers to import as much and for that reason perhaps going forward that deficit could narrow a bit further. The U.S. dollar trades at 9.98 South African rand, 63 British pounds, 0.74 euro. One U.S. dollar is worth 8.42, Botswana pulas, 5.41 Zambian guachas. Platinum, $1,415 and gold, $1,347 an ounce. Brand crude, $104.15 a barrel. Economics update.
Thank you, Tabiso. UNAIDS, the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV-AIDS and Lancet, one of the leading pathology laboratories in Africa, will bring together political and health leaders to shape the debate on the future of global health. The meeting, titled From AIDS to Sustainable Health, will be held in Lilongwe, Malawi, later this month. More than 30 commissioners, including heads of state, policy makers, development experts, young people and AIDS advocates, will explore how the AIDS response can be used to shape the future of global health. The UNAIDS and Lancet Commission is co-chaired by, among others, Malawi President Joyce Banda and African Union Commission Chairperson Nkosazana Lamini Zuma. For more on this, we're now joined on the line from Geneva by Senior Advisor at UNAIDS, Kent Buse. Good morning, Kent, and welcome to Channel Africa. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for having me on the program. I just want to make a small correction. The yes. Lancet in, is, in fact, um, a co-convener of the Commission, but it's, it's not a laboratory in South Africa. It's, in fact, a leading international medical journal. And um, as I said, they are co-convening with UNAIDS, this Commission from AIDS to Sustainable Health. But yes, please, good morning. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ken, for that correction. Now, what motivated the decision to include such diverse group of experts um, for this frank discussions, and what are the objectives of this meeting? All right. Um, Well, I think listeners need to recognize and acknowledge that the AIDS response, in fact, has a long tradition of bringing very diverse people and perspectives to bear on the challenges at hand. And and from the earliest days of the HIV epidemic, and, and one saw this in South Africa, among many other countries, that it was actually very clear that AIDS was not simply a scientific and medical challenge. And in fact, it wasn't even really just a health challenge, but also a social, a cultural, an economic, and, and really a also a human rights issue. And the AIDS response realized that to change attitudes and behaviors, for example, it was important to work through schools and to work with church leaders and so on. And to deal with discrimination, it was critical to engage with ministries of justice and law enforcement agencies and the courts. So I think that we need to see this in a, in a long history in which the AIDS response has brought people living with HIV and people at higher risk of HIV, such as sex workers and people who use drugs, together with people like scientists and policymakers. So the, the commission is really the same, and, and its distinctive strength, I would say, lies, in fact, in the diversity of, of the kinds of people that, that you talked about in the intro clip there. It will see heads of state directly debating issues with activists, uh, foreign ministers with youth leaders, captains of R&D industry with um, generic industry, with consumer rights champions, religious leaders with chief justices who often have different takes on things. It's an eclectic group for a, a, a good reason. And I think the thing that people need to understand it is, is that, that, that the com- complexity of global health actually is not dissimilar to the complexity of the AIDS response, and that real progress in moving forward on global health will hinge on bringing in diverse perspectives and expertise to develop practical solutions to global health. 
and to leverage, leverage sort of the range of these leaders to ensure that health is well positioned as the international community debates the post-2015 development agenda. So, the, so the, that's the reason really for bringing such a diverse and wide group of people together. The, the aims of the Commission itself are, are threefold. The first is that um, modeling demonstrates mathematical modeling, epidemiological modeling demonstrates that we could end AIDS um, in the next 30 to 50 years, depending on the actions we take. And so the commissioners will debate one question around, well, what would it take to end AIDS? The second question will be, um, how can we apply lessons from the AIDS response to a transformation of global health? And we think that that transformation of global health is very necessary. Um, we see new kinds of health issues emerging, non-communicable diseases, uh, interpersonal violence, road traffic accidents, and so on. And we think that there are valuable lessons from the AIDS response to transforming global health. So it's really those two questions that the Commission will be addressing. Now, Kent, is Africa making progress in the fight against AIDS? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. And I think that um, huge progress is being made. And as your listeners will know... um, Take the, you know, I think back on the the African Union uh, recent anniversary celebrated in uh, Addis Ababa a few year, weeks ago, and that meeting was very much about celebrating progress on the continent on many fronts, economic growth, better governance, greater unity, and increasing influence on the world stage of Africa. And I think, however, though, one of the real major unsung African success stories is, in fact, the, the AIDS response. And I think all listeners need to know that Africa has indeed turned the AIDS epidemic around. It's really moved from, from hope to despair, I think, in, in my view. And just to give you a few numbers, uh, the number of people, the number of Africans receiving antiretroviral treatment for, for AIDS increased from less than 1 million in 2005 to 7.1 million in 2012, with nearly 1 million people added to treatment last year alone. Because of this this treatment, eight deaths are rapidly falling. falling. Um, They fell by a third between 2005 and 2011. And new infections are also down. They're down by about a third between 2001 and 2011. And that's real progress. and you see it in South Africa, where you're calling me from, a 20% increase um, in people on treatment last year alone. 16 countries um, in Africa now ensure that more than three-quarters of women, pregnant women, living with HIV receive antiretroviral medicine to prevent the transmission of HIV to their child. And because of that, um, African leaders are beginning to talk about an AIDS-free generation with being within, within Africa's grasp. But of course, AIDS isn't over. AIDS remains the leading cause of death among young women worldwide. Africa continues to be more affected by HIV than any other region in the world, as you know, and it accounts, in fact, for 69%, so roughly 70% of people living with HIV in the world. And despite the positive trends I spoke about earlier, um, just two more figures. In 2011, there were still 1.8 million, that's 1.8 million new HIV infections across the continent. And last year, tragically, 1.2 million people still died of AIDS-related illnesses, despite the fact that treatment is available if everyone were able to access it. So basically, the Commission aims to keep AIDS on the agenda 
as the world develops a new framework um, to replace the Millennium Development Goals. And as I said, the Commission, however, also wants to illustrate the relevance of, of the lessons learned from the AIDS response for this broader transformation of global health. Kent, thank you so much for joining us. All right. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That was Senior Advisor at UNAIDS, a joint United Nations program on HIV-AIDS, Kent Buse, joining us on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A survey by the Human Sciences Research Council of South Africa shows that HIV prevalence in South Africa increased to 12.3% in 2012 from 10.3% in 2008. Researchers say this may be attributed to the success of the country's ARV treatment program. This emerged from the 2012 National HIV Household Survey. The Human Sciences Research Council presented preliminary findings of the study at the 6th South African AIDS Conference in Durban last night. The findings suggest that there should be a concern about the 15 to 24-year-olds. There's an increase in multiple sexual partnerships and condom use is declining among the youth and adult groups. Meanwhile, the number of people living with HIV is estimated at 6.4 million. Zanele Butelezi reports. The National HIV Household Survey was conducted in the period between January 2012 and November 2012. Over 37,000 people were interviewed and more than 28,000 were tested for HIV. Professor Thomas Rele says one of the key findings is that the overall HIV prevalence was 12.3% in 2012, which is an increase from 2008's 10.3%. This has led researchers to estimate that 6.4 million people are living with HIV and AIDS in the country, which is much higher than what most people had expected. Professor Rele says the HIV prevalence peaked in females between the ages of 30 and 34 at 36.7%, while among males it peaked at 23.7% in the 35 to 39-year age group. Now, when you look at this profile of young females between 20 and 34 years, this is particularly alarming that we have such an infection-level profile in South Africa. And as needless to say, that's, uh, it's the obvious target group where our prevention efforts on national scale has to really get an impact. The survey findings show that the HIV prevalence among the youth, or 15 to 24 years old, dropped from 10.3% in 2005 to 7.3% in 2012. However, it's a different trend among adults 25 years and older, as there was a substantial increase from 16.8% in 2008 to 19.6% in 2012. Dr. Kangelani Zuma says people with HIV are now living longer due to ARV treatment. And when we look deeper in the results, is that... uh, uh, the proportion of the prevalence of HIV has increased among people who are 25 years and above, but among those who are 15 years to 24 years, HIV prevalence has gone down, which means actually fewer youth is HIV positive, but more people who are 25 years and above 
bar for HIV positive shows a steady increase that could be attributed to, to success of antiretroviral therapy. South Africa has by far the largest ARV rollout program in the world. Of the 6.4 million people living with HIV, over 2 million patients are on ARVs. Over 4.1 million of the infected people are women and 1.4 of them are on treatment. On the other hand, 2.2 million men are HIV positive, but over 600,000 of them are on treatment. KwaZulu-Natal followed by Mpumalanga are the only provinces with a HIV prevalence of well over 20%. The Department of Health's Deputy Director General Jürgen Pillay says they are concerned about the Western Cape. And the one province that has almost doubled in prevalence is the Western Cape. So it's either they're putting a lot of people on treatment or they're getting a lot of in-migration or a whole bunch of those kinds of factors that, are, that relate to the Western Cape. But clearly we need to understand what's going on. Mpumalanga has always been a concern. It was a concern last year as well when we released the antenatal survey result. The prevalence rate is going up, especially in Khetsibanda, and we're not sure why. Unfortunately, condom use among the youth aged between 15 and 24, as well as adults aged between 25 and 49, has significantly declined. Dr. Lickness says males in the same group seem to be increasingly having multiple sexual partners. And that is a source of concern, suggesting that is uh, something which we can target, particularly among uh, or in that sex. Dr. Pillay says the survey is extremely useful for planning, programming and reporting to international organizations. He says he's happy with the numbers of people on ARVs, as well as those who are tested for HIV. The big challenge, of course, is not only to have 2 million people on treatment, is that we had suggested in the NSP that we will have 3.3 million people on treatment by 2016. Unfortunately, as you know, WHO is going to shift the goalpost again and suggest new eligibility criteria, which means that that number is going to increase. So the, the, the stress on the health system, the stress on families, the stress on individuals is going to increase with expanding the treatment program. The good thing about it is that we know treatment is also prevention. So it's a good investment to make and we will continue to make. A more comprehensive report is expected to be released by the Human Sciences Research Council together with its partners after six weeks. Zanele Butelezi, Durban. We now cross over to Tami Kluza for our sporting update. Thanks for joining us once again from the sports desk in soccer. African champions Nigeria are taking one of the big guns of Group B Uruguay tonight. In the other Group B game tonight, world and European champions Spain take on Tahiti in the iconic Maracana Stadium in Rio de Janeiro. That match will kick off at 4 p.m. Central African time. A win for Nigeria tonight will see them going to six points and confirming their place in the semifinals in what would be a huge achievement for the Super Eagles who are making their first appearance in this tournament in 18 years. But coach Stephen Keshi is not putting pressure on his boys. We want to attack game by game until the end of the tournament. So we're not putting a benchmark on our tournament. We just um, we want to leave a little bit of stress and panic and just focus on our ability, what the team can do, uh, what experience we can gain until again after the tournament. 
Italy rallied from a two-goal deficit to beat Japan 4-3 this morning and earn a sport in the Confederations Cup semi-final. In the other match yesterday, Brazilian superstar Neymar scored one goal and set up the other to give host Brazil a 2-0 win over Mexico in their Group A game and a place in the semi-finals of the Confederations Cup. And that match was played in Fortaleza. Brazil will now play Italy in their final group match in Salvatore on Saturday. And now in rugby, there are only three changes in the South African Springbok team to face Samoa in the final match of the Castle Lager incoming series on Saturday. And that match will take place at Loftus First Felt. Springbok coach Haneke Meyer says Velem Alberts is still struggling with injury, but is hopeful that he will still make Saturday's test. But if Alberts fails to gain fitness, then Sia Kulisi will start at flank with Marcel Kutsiem coming on on the bench. Here is coach Haneke Meyer. Yeah, Willem's also still struggling for injury. That's why they didn't play last week. Um, the medical team is quite confident that he will be fine on uh, on Saturday. But it's just precautionary, so if he won't play, then uh, Sia would move into the seventh position. Mayor also revealed that Springbok captain Jean de Villiers could still be available to play in Saturday's test and that the final decision on de Villiers will be made on Friday. There's been good news. Um, I'm not 100% sure about all the medical terms, but uh, uh, he had a scan yesterday and there's nothing broken or, uh, you know, teared, no ligaments. So uh, it's much better today, still a 50-50, and we will wait till, till uh, Friday before we make that decision. But uh, it's been much better than, than yesterday. Yesterday was probably no chance that he would have played. But I've said before, he's a warrior and uh, he's a miracle worker, so he's done it before. So hopefully he will be fit, and I think we need him because it's going to be a really tough game. And now in netball news, some familiar faces have returned to the South African Spanish netball team that was announced by Netball South Africa yesterday for the African Championships in Malawi. Coach Elias Gotza says that they are delighted to welcome back players like Yolanda Salmans and Nontle Guavu. A number of senior members of the national team are unavailable for selection because of either injury or work commitments, but Gotza is happy with the team selected. Maya Holhassett will captain the team in the absence of Amayanda Mayat, who is playing netball in New Zealand and Bongwe Somi has been named vice-captain. The championship starts on Monday and ends on Saturday. And in cricket news, South Africa's coach Gary Kastner has admitted that his team deserved the tag of chokers after it crashed out to a seven-wicket defeat by England in the Champions Trophy semi-final yesterday. Nati Gemanos reports. In the first semi-final of the Champions Trophy, England dominated South Africa by beating them by seven wickets and with 75 balls to spare. England was set a small target of 176, with Jonathan Trottop scoring on 82 from 84 with 11 fours. He held the innings together and helped England get over the line by just losing the wickets of Alistair Cook, Ian Bell and Joe Root. For South Africa, Chris Morris took one for 38 in eight overs, while Rory Kleinfeld picked up one for 10 in the four that he bowled. In South Africa's innings of 175 all out, the top score of 56 came from David Miller. He was undefeated and faced 51 balls with five fours and two sixes. For England, James Treadwell was given the Man of the Match award. He took three for 19 in seven overs, while James Anderson picked up two for 14 in eight. And finally with hockey, South African hockey team continues to remain in the spotlight following great performances from men's and women's team in recent years. The men's team recently enjoyed a 3-0 home triumph over Malaysia in the 4-test series and the world number 12 ranked team will fly out to Malaysia on June the 24th for the World League semi-finals which will take place from June the 29th until July the 7th in Baru in Malaysia. In Pool B, South Africa meet world number 4 England on June 29th, number 13 Malaysia 
on June 30th and number 5 Pakistan on July the 2nd and all those matches will start at 3 p.m. Central African time. Tamikuza Channel Africa Sports. Thank you, Tammy. Striking teachers and nurses in Kenya have vowed not to return to work until their salary demands are fully met by government. Teachers and nurses in public schools and hospitals are demanding a salary increase and payments for their hardship allowances. Most public schools and hospitals in Kenya are now facing crisis as the strike enters its third day today. From Nairobi, Mwagi Konya reports. Despite government efforts to avert industrial action by teachers and nurses in public schools and hospitals, in protest against government's failure to implement their demands, they have now vowed not to return to their working stations till their demands are met. For the second running day, the striking teachers and nurses have downed their tools, demanding pay increase and immediate payments of their hardship, medical, house, and commuter allowances. According to the chairman of the post-primary education teachers' union, Omboko Malembe, the strike was still in force. The strike continues until further advice from the national governing council and hand over the schools the board of management the teachers will not take anything they will remain at home until this one is done last evening the teachers union defied government request to return to their workstations as arrangements were in advanced stage to pay their allowances union leaders told their members to stay away from classrooms because the strike has not been called off they claim to have exhausted all revenues for dialogue and were just waiting for their pay increase and allowances, as agreed more than 10 years ago. The Secretary General of the Kenya National Union of Teachers, Ms. Wunsosian, say they are no longer interested with more dialogue with the government on their demands. We are not ready for any meetings anymore whatsoever. Let them know. We have been meeting since 1997. We have been signing agreements since 1997. Agreements which are swept under the carpet. When you get to the end of June salaries, you save them. Utilize them well because we do not know when the strike will end. The Kenya National Teachers Union has accused the government for failure to allocate adequate fund for teacher salaries and allowances in the current national budget. Mr. Wilson Sosian again. If the supplementary estimates does not factor the 47 billion required to pay teachers allowances, then they can be sure that they're not curing anything at all. That is not going to forestall the teacher strike. And besides the national teacher strike, Nurses and Nairobi state workers have also downed their tools in demand for pay rise and allowances. Nurses claim the government has failed to honor a collective bargaining agreement between the government and health workers. The strikers affecting the National Referral Hospital in Nairobi as patients remain unattended for the second day running. Efforts by health minister to end the nurses' strike last evening was futile. Also at the city hall in Nairobi, vital delivery services have been disrupted after council employees laid down their tools in protest against council's failure to pay their two-month salary. Economic and political analysts in Nairobi fear that the unresolved strikes in Kenya could seriously affect economic growth, foreign investments, and lead to disharmony in the labor market. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi.
Chief Executive Officer of the Nelson Mandela Center of Memory, Silo Hatang, says South African President Nelson Mandela's hospitalization, rather former South African President Nelson Mandela's hospitalization, is an opportunity for people to rise to the occasion of the call of the International Nelson Mandela Day this year. The former statesman has been in hospital for 12 days. International Nelson Mandela Day is observed on the Nobel Laureate's birthday, July the Nobel Laureate's birthday, July the 18th. The day calls on people of the world to give 67 minutes of their time in changing the world. The Nelson Mandela Center of Memory officially launched the program for this year's event in Johannesburg, South Africa. Tutongo Beni has more. Chief Executive Officer at the Nelson Mandela Center of Memory, Silo Hatang, says former South African President Nelson Mandela's hospitalization is an opportunity for people to rise to the occasion of the call of the International Nelson Mandela Day this year. The day is expected to be the biggest activation ever this year since the United Nations officially declared the 18th of July as International Nelson Mandela Day in November 2009. The Center of Memory launched the program for this year's event ahead of the day in a month's time. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. Mandela gave 67 years of his life fighting for social justice and human rights. The Mandela Day campaign asked that individuals, groups and corporates use just 67 minutes of their time on the 18th of July and every day thereafter to giving back. This can be by supporting a charity or serving the community, no matter how small their action. Their aim is to change the world for the better. Hatang explains. Just to say that for us, we see this as an opportunity for people to rise above Madiba's hospitalization. And in fact, it's an opportunity for people to see that the legacy lives on through each and every one of us doing something good and responding to that call. Mandela Day initiatives taking place this year focus on but are not limited to shelter, literacy and food security. Mandela's great-grandson, Mvoyo Mandela, says the day is about doing simple things. Every single day, if you can find the opportunity, make someone smile, you had a rough day at work, your housekeeper needs a ride home, at home, simple things. It doesn't have to be a grand international day. That sign says Nelson Mandela International Day. That's on the 18th of July. But you have the opportunity to make every single day a Mandela Day. United Nations member countries will this year be organizing events to mark International Nelson Mandela Day. The United Nations representative in South Africa, Dr. Augustino Zakaria, says the UN is focusing on Mandela's recovery. I feel so sorry that most of the questions that I've been getting in the last few weeks, <coughs> months or so, is, oh, is Tata going to make it? that people are focusing more on his passing away rather than his recovery. We at UN would like to focus on his recovery, big recovery, and wishing well. Andrew Langeni, surviving Rivonia trialist, will be at the United Nations General Assembly on the day to talk about the global icon. Spokesperson at the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, Clayson Munyela says Mandela is the embodiment of South Africa. He remains the embodiment of bright South Africa, of what this country is about. We are 
as a nation and as a people. Lead SA is a non-governmental organization in South Africa that calls for citizens to bring change in their country. Chairperson at Lead SA, Yusuf Abramji, is calling on citizens of the Southern African nation to mark 20 years of freedom by making a difference. But fellow South Africans, let's not forget that we are celebrating 20 years of freedom on the 27th of April 2014. In the spirit of Lead South Africa, we are here to declare a program that calls on the nation to do 20 hours of volunteerism in the spirit of Nelson Mandela International Day. We're not saying to you how long you should do to complete your 20 hours of volunteerism as we count down to 2014, but we want you to use the 18th of July, the 67 minutes as a starting point. Use the 18th of July, 67 minutes, to lock your 20 hours of volunteerism and come the 27th of April next year when we celebrate 20 years of our democracy, will be able to say clearly that we stood up, we did what was right for South Africa, and we made a difference. South African celebrities have also been roped in to be part of programs of events of the day. The celebrities include Joan Ramukhoshi, Gareth Cliff, Danny Kay, Gabelo Proverb, and Borang Mateba. Mateba says she has a big role in influencing people's lives. We as celebrities understand you know, what a big role we have what a huge impact we have, both the young and old people, you know, just helping to really communicate this message, letting people who follow us every single day to, you know, embrace Nelson Mandela Day. And for me this year is particularly, you know, important. A member of the African National Congress since 1944, Mandela was arrested on the 5th of August in 1962 and in 1964 sentenced to life imprisonment. After his release on the 11th of February 1990, he became South Africa's first democratically elected president, led a reconciliation process that caught the imagination of the world and continued to campaign for peace, unity and equality among all South Africans, regardless of race, gender, religion or cultural background. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tutongo Bene in Johannesburg. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or write to us at Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa, PO Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006, or send us an SMS to plus 2783-359-9174. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Serenje Kalundu. Band with Nali Gomawuko.